the situation has gone from bad to worse to grim for all the space capabilities that we've talked about here today and others those satellites are absolutely undefended they do not have a robust defense there are no escort satellites that are protecting them uh, we have got to get ahead of this game Welcome to the Space Power Podcast, where we interview strategists and defense experts on national power in space. I'm Jason Joel, and with me is Josh Gonzalez. We are honored today to be joined by Dr. Coyote Smith, a retired Air Force colonel and currently a professor of strategic space studies in the Department of Space Power at the Air Command and Staff College. Over his 30-year career, Coyote served in various flying, missile, space, and strategic planning assignments. He served as the director of DreamWorks, which was the future concept shop for the DOD's space program, and later served as the director of the Center for Strategy and Technology, where he led long-range strategic planning for the Air Force Chief of Staff. He is a space weapons officer, a graduate of the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies, and holds a doctorate in strategic studies from the University of Reading in the UK. He is the author of numerous works on space power, many of which we will discuss here today. Coyote, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing, Jason? It's good to see you. Good to see you, Josh. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an honor to have you here. It truly is to be our first guest on the Space Power Podcast. Can you imagine that? I'm the first. This is fantastic. I, I appreciate being here. Yeah, we really appreciate you coming in here. And so we only thought it was fitting that for our first episode, we start out with defining what space power is. So... What is space power? Well, <laughs> the right answer to that is it depends on who you ask. And uh, what I th- you'll hear definitions such as space power is the ability to do anything in space. That seems a little bit broad. Uh, but you'll hear other, th- other definitions such as the one proffered by Josh Carlson, the author of Space Power Ascendant, who says that space power is only the military applications in outer space. I actually want to split the difference between those definitions. I would prefer to say that space power is how nations achieve their interests in outer space. And in general, those interests are going to be national security, uh, national prestige, and national wealth. So along those lines, when you were a major at the School of of Advanced Air and Space Studies, you wrote a, a work your thesis called the 10 propositions regarding space power. I I can say that was truly impressive to read as somebody who's at a similar rank right now. It, I couldn't imagine doing that. So it was very forward looking and uh, really insightful. But one of the things you talked about in there was that space power is composed of a state's total space activity, specifically the civil, commercial, military, intelligence sectors. Um, what is the best way to align all of those? You talked about space power being, you know, all of a state's activity. How do we align those efforts of the individual sectors to maximize a state's space power? You know, that's interesting because we have one big industrial base that produces for all of the different sectors. And in general, we recognize 
the military space sector, the commercial space sector, the intelligence space sector, and of course, NASA with the civil space sector. One of the things that I would love to see, and we have an opportunity to do this, we should probably build a single space cadre of space experts that can uh, be assigned to NASA on one assignment, be assigned to the Space Force on another assignment, go to the National Reconnaissance Office where we collect intelligence, and at some point in their career, over the course of their lifetime, they'll probably leave the service and go work in the commercial sector. But I do think that the federal government had ought to get its entire space cadre together to develop top-quality space experts, because we're starting to lag behind developments in the rest of the world, particularly in the Space Force. So right now, the U.S. has the National Space Council, who in theory coordinates the nation's space activity. Would they be the appropriate agency or the appropriate group, rather, to lead such an organization? Or, or who should really, how would you see that organized? You know, ideally, what I think we will have is a Department of Space. And the Department of Space will independently recruit, uh, educate, and train those individuals that will go on to those space-related assignments in government. I also want to give a shout-out to NOAA. Uh, which does a fantastic job. They have a tremendous number of weather-related spacefaring activities, and they're also part of that participant group in the space cadre as well. And uh, this is my own opinion, of course, uh, and I speak only for my own self here. The opinions that I express today are my own and are not necessarily those of the government, but they ought to be. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's just uh, pushing forward into... That SAS paper we talked about that you wrote as a major, but you discussed David Lipton's four main schools of thought uh, in regards to military space power. Um, so for those listeners that might not be familiar with Lipton's work, he discussed four schools of thoughts regarding space power. First was the Sanctuary School, uh, which favors the use of space for satellite reconnaissance, and it wants space to be free of weapons. Second is the Survivability School, which argues that space is a good place to stage assets that can bring about military effects, but those assets cannot be depended on because of their inherent vulnerability. Then there's the high ground school, which argues that space is the dominant theater for military operations and must be fully weaponized. And then there's the control school, which posits that the space domain or certain segments of it must be controlled in the same way that the sea and air domains are. And so you argued that the U.S. space activities seem to fall under the sanctuary school from much of the Cold War. And then around Desert Storm, we moved into uh, more of a line with the survivability school. And then you posited that around 2001, the U.S. will likely pursue a space control doctrine. So there's two questions in here. Did your prediction prove to be accurate? Did the U.S. move to policies aligned with the space control school? And if so, are we still in a similar place today? Or which of the four main schools of thought does the U.S. appear to be operating under today? Wow, you guys are good. You're using my own words against me. You know, 20 years have come and gone and some things have changed. Uh, I think I made a reasonable prediction back at the turn of the century that we were going to take additional advances to uh, uh, use space in that much more high ground uh, vantage point or in the space control area as well. Uh, that really never happened. We're still kind of stuck in the space as a sanctuary, maybe in the survivalist area as well. We have become increasingly dependent as a nation on space-related capabilities, but we have done little to nothing to actually defend them. Uh, 
there is a debate that goes on. Oftentimes it's highly political. Oftentimes it's heavily internationalized. There are major movements afoot that do not want to see the United States uh, put defensive weapons onto orbit so it can protect its space capabilities simply because there are those out there that simply don't want to see space weaponized. Well, nobody wants to see space weaponized, but what's going to happen if space is weaponized that's any different than having a navy at sea, an army on land, and an air force in the sky? And the answer to that is is nothing. But there's a tremendous emphasis out there to prevent the weaponization of space simply because it will confer a definite asymmetric advantage on those that will do it first. Um, I believe in 2000, 2001, when I wrote this, we had the Rumsfeld Space Commission that had just come out. It indicated that uh, it was the last effort for the Air Force to get space right or Congress would have to act and create an independent space force. And that's what we have seen happen. Um, I believe that we were going to, in the wake of the 911 attack, uh, take space and space defense much more seriously. However, space suffers from being out of sight and out of mind, and there's always other priorities. And I want to give a shout out to the Air Force. I don't want to poke a stick in the Air Force's eye. Uh, they did a good job bringing space as far as it could inside its own air power and air-minded, air-centric culture. But for space to go any further, it really, we needed to have an independent service. Keeping in line with that, you were one of the earliest proponents of a separate Space Force or Space Corps. Um, you have advocated at various times the creation of a Space Corps under the Department of the Air Force, which would eventually evolve into a Space Force as part of its own department. None of that really happened. Um, what, what do you think is the next step for the Space Force to truly develop its space power and make sure the United States remains dominant in the space domain? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's a, it's interesting because my fight for this began in the late 1990s. Uh, I had a senator from New Hampshire named Bob Smith. And Bob Smith was instrumental uh, after uh, some conversations that I had with he and his staff of creating the Rumsfeld Space Commission. And he hoped at that time that we would have an independent space force. Because if the Air Force truly believed in air and space power, and given the golden means by the way the DOD cuts its budget, if you had an independent space force, a fully independent with its own secretary and an equalized budget to the other services, air and space together would get roughly 50% of the budget. Now, of course, that's highly threatening to the other services. If you think that there's just one defense pie, you're dividing up those other services' funds and putting it into space. And when you're sitting there on the Joint Chiefs of Staff and you're, you're – sitting there with three other guys that are going to vote against you, if they do a democratic process, that's not going to work very well. Well, anyway, uh, we have advanced the ball significantly. Starting in 2017, Congressman Mike Rogers, who's now my representative from the great state of Alabama, Alabama District 3, uh, he picked up the mantle. We worked with him, and uh, he started pushing for a space core inside the Air Force with the stated objective of advancing it to an independent service with its own independent secretariat um, at the earliest reasonable time. You can't do it too fast. You, you, you do have to do it slowly in the United States. You can't just break an organization like the Air Force out of whole cloth and create something entirely new. Now, it would have been possible 
for the Air Force simply to say, if you're working in Colorado Springs, you're in the Space Force. And we sort it out later. But that's not what they did because they wanted people to have the opportunity to volunteer to be in the Space Force or to remain in the Air Force and with the other services. And I think that was kind of an interesting approach. But, you know, we really don't have a Space Force, as you suggested. We really have a Space Corps by a different name. And I want you to think about the Army Air Corps during, during the period prior to the Second World War. That's where we are. We have a Air Corps, a, a Space Corps to the Air Force. We're still underneath the Air Force. The Air Force Secretary makes all the general officer decisions for the Space Force. Uh, the general officers that serve in the Space Force are not free to take a position contrary to the Secretary of the Air Force. And when you're called the Air Force, it goes without saying what your priority is, air power. And so to some degree, space power remains a secondary mission under the Department of the Air Force. And in order to advance the ball, as you suggest, we need to have an independent secretariat and make good on the fact that we have a whole independent space force of space-minded people recruited expressly for their interest in space and for their ability to contribute. They need to be educated and trained to be true space professionals, much like the NASA community. When you go see NASA, they do not have high school, high school graduates operating their space systems. They have serious engineers and PhDs with degrees in physics and astrosciences. And that is the same quality of operations that a quality space force must have. So what do you think would be needed, or do you see a path for the Space Force to get its own department? What events would need to happen uh, for, for it to move to its own department? Well, I think it's kind of interesting because back in 2017, Congressman Rogers, who was at then the chairman of the Strategic Forces Subcommittee of the House Armed Services Committee, asked uh, the chief of staff of the Air Force at that time, General Goldfein, and Heather Wilson, who was the secretary of the Air Force, what it was going to take for them to uh, create something independent or greater autonomy for space power in, inside or outside of the Air Force. And they both answered that it's inevitable, but they didn't think the timing was right. And Congressman Rogers put them on the spot and he goes, well, if it's inevitable, what are you waiting for? For the enemy to get stronger or for a disaster to happen? <laughs> you know, and you could see like the air leave the room as uh, the, the chief of staff and the secretary were put on the spot. It was a, a good question. And uh, eventually, General Goldfein uh, saw the light that probably was time to start making the move towards greater autonomy for space, much like airmen had worked for greater autonomy for the air arm under the Army. Um, fortunately, the United States Army Air Forces, no longer a corps, but the Army Air Forces, still under the Army, evolved in 1941, in the summer of 1941, just in time for greater autonomy for the air arm to be its effective self during the Second World War. So yeah, what are the pieces that need to fall into place? Congressional support. It's going to start with the House. It's going to require uh, Congressman Rogers, who I believe will become the next chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, to start making deals. Uh, politics is the art of the deal. And he will need to go to the uh, people in the Senate and make an arrangement for the establishment of a fully autonomous secretariat. But I do believe that Congressman Rogers is going to be the key, the, 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 the key pin to make that piece of legislation start moving through the House onto the Senate and to the White House. 
Um, you know, while I mentioned the White House, we've had a, a problem in the space community, not just inside the defense-related space community, but also inside of NASA. And it's simple as this. What one administration gives, the next administration takes away. And sustaining projects across administrations has proven exceptionally difficult. One of the reasons why we're able to go back to the moon with the Artemis Accords is because we've internationalized that process. And now the members of Congress and the administration are obligated either to carry that program forward or to disappoint all the signatories on those accords uh, that they will not be going to the moon with the United States. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that um, we're risking disaster. In, in previous work, you've talked about a space Pearl Harbor, which mostly was due to the fact that we've spent so many resources uh, focused on space situational awareness and less on defending our own assets. Do you think something like a space Pearl Harbor could be the impetus for getting the Space Force out from the Department of the Air Force? Or And what do you see as a space Pearl Harbor? Is it attacks on GPS? Is it an EMP? What does that look like? You know, this is interesting. And of course, we always draw the analogy. The actual analogy to a space Pearl Harbor means a, a surprise attack or one that we should have been looking for, but we just didn't believe it would ever happen. And that's really what the space Pearl Harbor is. Uh, in terms of the catastrophic effects that could happen, just think about the global positioning system. The American public, in fact, the world at large, doesn't really realize the tremendous benefit and dependency that we have on GPS. GPS by itself has an annual valuation to the U.S. economy approaching $400 billion, billion with a B. And that's taxed revenue creating a profit in the government that can be spent on other programs and projects. Your Space Force is a money-making proposition, and I'm only talking about one of our many systems, the Global Positioning System. But there's only 24 satellites. And let me tell you why that's critical. GPS is integrated into our electrical power grids. Yes, those motor generators, in order to maximize the power output of electricity that they generate, we have to integrate GPS to maximize and harmonize their output. We do the same thing through the distribution network so that we can maximize the power distribution. If we lose GPS, the 15, 16 if you include a couple other areas, major power grids in the U.S. will start experiencing blackouts and grayouts because we are way over our ability to generate electricity to meet the demand without the additional efficiencies that GPS gives us. This will be catastrophic. And what uses electricity in your home? Everything. So you're saying I need a uh, hand crank radio and flashlight. Yes, and, and also a tinfoil hat, because that always, always comes in handy in emergencies <laughs> like this. It keeps the children entertained, and it's just really handy. And I've also been practicing with a map and compass, so I should be fine. It's Jason I'm worried about. Yeah, you know, I've used the analogy with the Army. One of the ways that uh, you can navigate is you, you uh, get a bucket of water, you get a needle, and you get a magnet, and you rub the, the, the needle about 100 times, and it magnetizes it. It puts a North Pole and a South Pole on the needle, and then you carefully float that needle on that that tension surface of that bucket of water, and it'll point to true north. Wow. That's all oh, we need. Magnetic north. Mag point to magnetic north. Well, I know a new activity for my homeschool kids. That's right. So imagine this. Without GPS, we should have soldiers running around with needles, magnets, and buckets. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> we'll take that idea to the Pentagon. <laughs> so that's truly 
a terrifying prospect, right? Because all you talked about right there as a, as a potential Space Pearl Harbor was an attack on GPS. That's not attack on humans, on property here on Earth. That's one satellite constellation in space. There's a tremendous economic impact just from GPS. There is so much more in space that could be attacked or attacks from space that could really devastate. Um, can you talk a little bit more about some of the other systems? Oh, yeah. You know, we've got so many systems. I've, one of the systems that has saved so many lives is the wonderful network of weather satellites up there on orbit. And when you lose weather data, suddenly the Bermuda Triangle becomes a Bermuda Triangle again. You know, we know why the Bermuda Triangle has been such a, a problem for navigation, aircraft, and, and ships. It's because the weather is unpredictable. You get the cyclonic effect in the weather that creates hurricanes that pop up. Most hurricanes don't develop into the full-blown things that we hear about on the Weather Channel. They just are little small events that happen out there in that neck of the woods. But with the satellites, we're able to see that kind of stuff. And we're able to report that. And we're able to assist in the prediction of weather so that we have safe safe travel, safe commerce, etc. in those areas. Other satellites that are vitally important to us, we have infrared satellites out on orbit that study the, not, not only the thermal but also the luminary uh, essence of the Earth. Those satellites were originally designed to look for missile warning, to, to look for missile launches rather, and report those to places where they could intercept those missiles or to provide warning that a, a possible nuclear attack was underway. Those types of satellites are critical because they do far more than just missile warning. They're characterizing the thermal patterns of the Earth as well, and that has many scientific value, much scientific value. It's tremendously useful for like forest fire monitoring, volcano monitoring, other things like that. Now, to bring it right back to home, those communication satellites out there are so critical. And to give you an idea of what a space Pearl Harbor will do that will affect your life, when your alarm clock goes off in the morning, you may have an alarm clock that's rectified to GPS so you've got exactly the right second on your, on your clock. When you hit that snooze and you take that little, uh, that little break again, uh, you get up a moment later, you turn on the TV, and you're watching satellite data link news come to you. The reason why you know what's going on instantly all around the world is because of those satellite data links. You know, suddenly we're able to actually be personally invested in what's going on in Ukraine or in Asia, or in Africa, South America, etc. It's really amazing how space capabilities have shrunk the world. I think that would be a tremendous loss. Now, it is true. Fiber optic cables, etc. carry far more data than the satellites do right now. However, that is changing. You've heard about Starlink satellite that SpaceX is putting up. Now they have over, what is it, like, there's over 6,000 total satellites operational on orbit now. And before the end of this decade, there's going to be over 40,000 satellites on orbit. And before the end of the next decade, over 300,000 satellites on orbit. They're going to be moving all mobile telephone communications, all television communications, all forms of network communications to space. And the, and the reason simple. It's cheaper than using terrestrial networks. Our terrestrial networks are aging out. We have wires in our system that are 100 years old. The impedance, the resistance on those is just slowing everything down. And because we want everything fast and quick, fast and quick is good, mm. you know, so we will uh, put those systems up onto orbit to take over that portion of telecommunications for humanity. Now, this means something to us. We're not going to have to spend the money to replace our current wires and cables, etc. 
But think what it means to sub-Saharan Africa and those island chains in the Pacific, inhabited island chains. That means they're suddenly going to have the same information backbone as everyone else. The internet will be provided. Telecommunications will be provided. Information news services will be provided. We will have a tremendous opportunity to shrink the world yet again with this cost-saving move to space. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about the cost because replacing all of the terrestrial stuff would be expensive. But space is also tremendously expensive. Satellites are very expensive. Getting out of Earth's gravity well and into the orbit is also very expensive. But you mentioned earlier the economic benefit that GPS alone brings to Earth. So there's certainly an argument that, yeah, it will be a cost-saving measure in the future. That's right, and a unique capability that will be a first of its kind. And then not to mention space-based solar power thrown into the mix of all that, just further expanding sub-Saharan African, Pacific Island chains, all that. Yeah, really completely changing the world just through space activities. That's right. You know, right now, 22 different nations, Europe, Canada, and the United States are working feverishly to put together space-based solar power satellites. And for your listeners that don't know what that is, we have the ability of putting up super thin film solar arrays in outer space that collect the sun's super intense uh, energy in photons and converting it to a, a broadcast and broadcast it safely and cleanly down here to Earth in a desaturated manner that's not harmful to the environment or to people and be able to just feed that directly into the electrical power grid. What I want people to think about, and I'm even having a discussion with some of the folks in Alabama Power here in the state of Alabama, it is possible for them to stop doing power generation using coal and nuclear, etc., fossil fuel burning systems, and get their energy directly broadcast to them from space and feed it directly into the existing power grid. Now, the cool thing about this is the plan for the back part of the 21st century is that that power will be wide area broadcast so that uh, that energy will simply power our devices. Our devices will be made much more efficient, as you can imagine, that's what happens over time. And you'll have battery storage, so when you aren't using your product, uh, it will collect energy and store it in its own batteries. Uh, but over, over time, we intend to make that broadcast of energy intelligent. It will be the internet itself. It will be the method of not only powering your devices, but making those devices super intelligent so that uh, they work better. They get a tune-up every time you turn them on so that you are plugged into the information grid at all times. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very futuristic. And I think a lot of people would argue that that's too forward-looking and that's never going to happen in our lifetimes. Um, keeping it a little bit more focused on today, what's happening right now, uh, talking about the Space Force, the Space Force capstone publication for space power, General Raymond uh, talked in his introduction and said that military space forces are encouraged to read, critique, debate, and improve upon the ideas that follow. So I've heard you mention it before. We are in the infancy of space activity. You know, the comparison is we're in the balloon age uh, as relative to aviation, right? There's a lot of development that's going to happen. But what can we do today, specifically for the Space Force, what are some of the shortcomings of the Space Force's space power doctrine? Where could improvements be made? Where should the Space Force be looking in general? And is current space power 
theory focused on the here and now looking down towards Earth, or should it be looking outward beyond? Wow, you're asking a very loaded set of questions in there. Uh, I guess I'm going to try to attack it in reverse. I'm going to start with your last question. Sure. Yeah, right now, our space doctrine is dedicated to the idea of space support to the warfighter. This would be like the United States Army saying, all right, we're going to have an independent air force, but you can only do close air support to support the army. We need to we need to think much bigger than that. Space is already much bigger than just that vision. And I will say that uh, this doctrine that you're referring to is in error because it only speaks about space power in its military role and the space force in its military role. But as with GPS, as we already demonstrated, GPS is prolific and, and serves every other instrument of national power, our private citizens, and the daily way of life, not just for Americans, but for people around the globe. So we need to really change the way we speak about the Space Force and its roles and missions. It is not just support to the warfighter. In fact, right now, it's like Burger King at rush hour for those people that are in those space squadrons out of Colorado Springs and elsewhere around the country reason why they're busy, even though there's no war going on and they aren't supporting a warfighter right now, they are supporting the global economy. And even when we do go to war someplace, we can't stop doing our support to the global economy just to support the warfighter. Now, the warfighter is going to get a higher priority for the services we have. But what we're going to do is we're going to go out, because our satellites in, in the Space Force are already at max capacity, we lease commercial bandwidth, commercial imagery, commercial services, and provide those to our forward-deployed warfighters. This is a, a good arrangement because it allows the Space Force to focus on the rest of the world while providing support to the warfighter and uh, gives the warfighter what they need off a commercial backbone. But it demonstrates how dependent the Space Force and military space is on the commercial backbone of space. This is one of the reasons why I favor a uh, space department that is able to go out and build a single united space cadre that can move between all of those government organizations. And I want that cadre educated at civilian universities that do education for those people that will actually go off into the commercial sector rather than going into government public service. Uh, that way our public servants in space will know the people that they're going to be dealing with in the commercial sector. Plus, if those people in our space service, want to move on and go into the commercial sector, they'll have their points of contact. One of the things that is a measure of effectiveness for this model is if industry is banging the door trying to hire away our space professionals from the Space Force. Currently, that's not happening because the education and training that's provided to our space professionals is not up to speed of what NASA and the commercial space operators require. That's just the way it is. But we have the opportunity of making the best space cadre in the world. But we're going to have to do it beyond the Space Force itself in concert with NASA, the National Reconnaissance Office, NOAA, and some other organizations out there that also do government spacefaring. It seems like we are making some positive steps, to just like you're mentioning, with the uh, Space Force, IDE moving to, or and War College moving to John Hopkins University in D.C. I think that's a positive step towards further developing the education of at least guardian officers. I'm wondering, is there a plan in place for the enlisted as well? Or do you know how we're going to further that education level? 
Yeah, you know, that's a very good question. You use the acronym IDE, which for your listeners stands for uh, Intermediate Developmental Education for our officers. Those are officers that have typically been in roughly 10 years. They're at the midpoint of their career, and they, they of a 20-year career, and they come to a school like Air Command Staff College, or in the case of space professionals and those others from different services. And I'm sitting here looking at a Coast Guardsman and, and a soldier. Bless you guys. Um it's it's going to be a, a very interesting school. They are pursuing degrees in international public policy at Johns Hopkins. And so that will scratch some itch for the development of those officers. However, there's still a driving thirst for technical savvy amongst those space officers. And the goal here is to, one, make them better operators of the actual hardware. I made the point that NASA doesn't have uh, high school graduates operating their space systems, and the Space Force should not either. We need to have the proper technical background and skills to, to not only manage the current systems, but to imagine and design the future systems, the next best if you will. But yeah, Johns Hopkins, that's going to be fascinating. Uh, I hope that we will see it branch out to include uh, their advanced physics lab over in the Baltimore section of Johns Hopkins. That will really be a tremendous attribute. But for those that are liberally minded, the, the, the SICE really, and that stands for the School of... School of Advanced International Studies. Thank you. And for your listeners, we even trip over our acronym, so yeah, please, we for, please forgive us. And... Uh, I, I do believe that that's going to be a tremendous opportunity if we're able to, to take advantage of that. So along the same path you're mentioning, we need more advanced education for guardians. Are you an advocate of restricting entering the Space Force to only STEM degrees? Or are you more open to, for example, me with my Bachelor of Arts degree, would I be allowed in? Well, you see, uh, I, I favor both kinds of degrees. For those that will actually be the operators on console, I would like them to have a STEM degree because I need them to have start-to-finish knowledge of the equipment that they're operating. Now, for those that have less than those types of STEM degrees, and I don't want to say less than, that's a judgmental call, because I'm certainly one of those less thans. Uh, for those that have a liberal arts-related degree, there is plenty of jobs around for space professionals to deal with. Um, think about space intelligence. I don't necessarily need to be a technical expert to understand that. Think about legislative liaison roles and functions in D.C., uh, those folks that need to be our uh, um, space liaison officers, well, we, space attachés, there we go, that's the term, in forward, forward countries. When We're going to need your personnel people. We're going to need officers that do all kinds of things. I do have an innovative type of uh, idea for how to manage the enlisted force, if you'd like to hear that. Absolutely. What I'd love to see for the enlisted force. When you recruit a person, they have an interest, right? But they know that they're looking for themselves. Uh, they don't want to just come in and join something that's, that's reckless. They want to be part of something bigger, something that's awesome. You also have to recruit the parent because it's the parent that provides that moral support for that young person that enlists. I know. I was one. And what ends up happening when you join Coyote's Space Force, right? I'm going to look for a young enlisted person that has whatever types of skills that, that we need at the time. And when you, I'm going to tell the mother of that recruit or the father of that recruit, here's what's going to happen to your child. When they complete space basic training, they're going to be automatically enrolled in a four-year bachelor degree conferring online program in a space-related field. And they're going to have eight years to complete this four-year degree while they're serving on active duty. 
at any time that they complete that bachelor's degree, I'm going to give them a choice. You can either separate and go into the commercial market, or I'm going to commission you as an officer. And step one, and this is the same thing I'm going to do with everybody I bring in as an officer, as a, as a young lieutenant, or ensign as they should be called, in my humble opinion. <laughs> I'm going to send them off to get a space-related master's degree. Sending them off to get a space-related master's degree, and it's not all technical stuff. A lot of it will be, but it's not all technical stuff because I need accountants. I need contracting officers. I need serious experts in those fields of study that made a fantastic Coast Guard, a fantastic Army, an Air Force, Navy. We need all of that. Lawyers especially. Yeah, <laughs> lots of lawyers. Can't, 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 can't spread the butter on the bread without lawyers. Yeah, there's enough of them around, but somehow we need more. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, I, I really want to see us graduate our officers from a master's degree program before we ever put them on console. And then what I'd like to do is take 10% of those and send them off to get PhDs in engineering and in space science type of related fields. I want to bring them back. And on my Space Force bases near my launch ports, I want to have hangars of parts. And I want to have the type of guys that can design the first of any kind of satellite. And I want them to actually build it. And I want them to monster garage stuff that they can buy commercially until we know exactly what it is that we want. And with the education, appropriate education, we can do so quickly because they will be called experts. They will know what they're doing. And I want to take uh, those commercial products that, that we, we buy in monster garage and go back to the contractor and say, this is exactly how we'd like this made. We'd like to buy some of it this way. Can you do that for us? And for the stuff that we have uniquely designed for our own personal needs, when we need more than one satellite, we'll master the parts, the components, the build method, the, the actual uh, blueprints for the, for the satellite. Then we'll go to the commercial sector and we'll say, this is exactly what we want. This is where you'll get all of your components. This is how much all those components will cost you because we've done it ourselves. And this is the profit margin that we would like to give you. And what we will have done is we will have made a space cadre that you can't BS at the table across the contractor. I want the contractors to make a proper and healthy profit. They deserve that. But I don't want runaway profits. And I need to have a cadre that knows what they're operating. And that's really how you get your return on investment there. Because sending every enlisted member to get their bachelor's, sending every officer to get their master's, and some to get their PhDs is an expensive proposition. But if you can recoup that money by you know, dollars saved from government contractors, I mean, there's a lot of money to be saved there. So it's certainly something that could pay off. Um, we're running out of time here, so we'll start to wrap up. One question we'd like to ask all of our guests is, as we discuss space activities still in its nascent stages, to further advance space power theory, what topics need to be further explored or developed? Oh, that's a fantastic question. Yeah, and you know the answer on that is going to be depend on where your interest lies, correct? Um, I do think the killer app, the killer application for space power is going to be space-based solar power. That is a unique case study. I would like to have those students out there uh, who are concerned about the environment, who, who have engineering savvy and, and a type of talent to actually examine space-based solar power. John Mankins, uh, who is a fantastic uh, scientist and engineer, he has been working on space-based solar power now for about 20 years. And uh, watching him is going to be an interesting 
type of thing as he goes about with his his studies. But I think everybody else needs to pile on board with space-based solar power because if we can do space-based solar power, we can do all of the other things as well. We see Elon Musk with SpaceX with their Starship that will have super heavy lift capability to move the mass up to orbit that will make space-based solar power with that super thin film solar array capability uh, a tremendous reality in, in, in very short term. I mean, we're literally talking about only a couple of decades before we see a real return on investment there. In terms of academics, if they're interested in the history of the development of space power, I recommend Walter McDougall's Pulitzer Prize winning novel from 1985, The Heavens and the Earth. Magisterial work. The effort that he put into that with Sources that were recently declassified at the time is second to none. For those who want a good um, reach into the technical education is Understanding Space, written by, by Martin France out at Air Force Academy. Fantastic book. You can find that right there on Amazon. It'll walk you right through all the formulaics of, of proper spacefaring. In terms of coming to grips with the threats that are out there, a number of organizations, Brian Whedon, uh, at uh, the Secure World Foundation publishes a very good annual book that broadly discusses the types of threats that are emerging out there in the world. Another one of those documents is prepared by CSIS, Center for Strategic and Strategic, Strategic International Studies. And International Studies. That's right. Thank you very much by Todd Harrison. Another top quality product. You can also find at government sites, the Defense uh, Intelligence Agency puts out a space threat report now about once every two years. And I will tell your listeners, the situation has gone from bad to worse to grim. For all the space capabilities that we've talked about here today and others, <sighs> Those satellites are absolutely undefended. They do not have a robust defense. There are no escort satellites that are protecting them. Uh, we have got to get ahead of this game. Meanwhile, our potential adversaries, whose name I won't name, are rolling off their counter space weapons from their factories and fielding them in, in alarming numbers. General Saltzman, Salty, you've got a hard job ahead of you, brother. But you know what? You've got us here at Air University, and you'll have them up at uh, Johns Hopkins. We're here for you, man. Awesome. And for our listeners, we'll put links to all of those uh, works in our show notes. Cody, can't thank you enough for, for coming on to the show today. It's been really enlightening for, for both us and, and hopefully for our listeners as well. Any final shots? Yeah, this is the most joint uh, radio podcast <laughs> I've ever seen. A Coast Guardsman, a soldier, and, and an Air Force guy talking about space. Woo! Yeah, we're still not quite sure how they let us in here, but happy to do it. <laughs> yeah, Great. We just, we just snuck in the back door. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Please give us a follow and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>